The views and opinions expressed by guests on the Hide and Seek podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or positions of the host or contributors. Hey everyone, this is Sarah. Would you like to take a more active role in the Hide and Seek community? Would you like to share your thoughts with other listeners? Join us in the Hide and Seek podcast discussion group on Facebook. You can find us by searching Hide and Seek podcast discussion group on Facebook. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Material heard on the Hide and Seek podcast is intended for adult listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Aids Brady Gillum went to Sturgis tonight to speak with the missing woman's mother about what may have happened to her daughter. I can tell you where she most likely is. I hadn't seen anybody that I felt comfortable saying anything to until today. The stories they tell are pretty fucked. They're pretty freaking gruesome. I kept all the text messages, Facebook messages, the messages between me and Brittany. I have all of them. I have everything. I told him, I said, I kill all the motherfuckers. And I was going to have my people fucking take care of it. I'll just say Brittany's name out of nowhere just to see what somebody says. Because this little town around here would be hard to hide something like that. Because eventually everything comes out. Some days I don't believe anything after where I think it's love. This is Hide and Seek, Season 3. I'm your host, James Basinger. Hey guys. Before we move on to the case file, let's recap last week with the addition of a couple pieces of info that will be new to listeners. In episode 25, we confirmed that messages in Brittany's Facebook account didn't match the data download Ashley did on July 9th, 2019. Messages between Sheldon and Brittany and Rockford the PI and Ashley while in Brittany's account were very different. Sheldon's character was revealed when we got a glimpse into Sheldon's private conversation with Brittany. Those messages show a man doing his best to support a woman he cares about deeply. We think they were a pretty solid indicator of his temperament. As a side note, on December 1st, 2018, at 10.28 p.m., Sheldon makes an attempt to reach Brittany on the account she shared with Cage by sending a thumbs up. When we access Sheldon's Facebook account, we check for correspondence with that account. We see that the thumbs up was sent, and we see it was opened. On July 17th, 2019. Eric finds out from Sheldon that he's given the notebooks to Jessica. Eric vanishes. He never makes another attempt to speak to Sheldon again not about the missing mother of his children, 
and not about the woman he claimed to be so concerned about just 24 hours before. Oh, and speaking of Eric... Here's an additional piece of information to chew on. Eight months after Brittany disappears, on July 9th, 2018, Rockford, the PI, receives a screenshot showing Brittany's most recent account with the well-known green dot next to her photo to indicate the account is active. Rockford messages Eric and says, someone was on Brittany's Facebook last night at about 11 p.m. Eric responds to Rockford and says, Was already shown that. Thanks. I'll tell you like I told her mom. I just got the fuck out of the probation center. I'm busy. In the transcript Ashley provided of her conversation with Rockford, the conversation between them ceases on June 4th after a disagreement. Brittany's account shows as active July 9th, 2019, when Rockford sends a message to the account demanding to know who's using it, saying, this isn't a joke. You need to tell me who this is. When there's no answer, Rockford sends another message at 10.57 p.m. and says, $1,000, deliver me the phone, cash, no names needed. The following day, on July 10th, 2019, at 1.57 p.m., there's a response to Rockford from Brittany's account. It's me. Now we do things my way. We see in the transcript of their conversation that on the same day, July 10th, 2019, the conversation between Rockford and Ashley picks up again. In her opening message to Rockford, Ashley says, it was me and Britt's Facebook. Wrapping up last week's episode, we see that Eric and Ashley Marie order Sheldon not to cooperate with law enforcement and discourage him from handing over Britney's notebooks. Sheldon ignores this and gives them to Jessica who turns them into law enforcement. In today's episode, we'll begin to explore the case file. We've decided to do this in a roundtable discussion format. This way, you can follow along with our discussion and our travels through the case file. And I'm going to warn you, it's a lot. You're going to have to keep up. All right, so Sarah, we have uh, the case file and very excited to share and go over this and go over just the details, everybody's testimony, holding people accountable to their words. But getting this case file, we had our challenges and there was uh, something, you know, this was something that we wanted to do early on and this was something that we wanted to get our hands on. But because it took some time to develop that trust with St. Joe County and getting to this point, you had eventually put in the FOIA request. And uh, in a brief summary, you know, tell us how that all worked itself out. 
So I put that FOIA request in uh, sometime, I think, at the end of April. And um, it took, I, I gave them uh, 15 days to respond, and it took about that for them to respond back to me. I spoke to a very uh, patient and helpful woman who contacted me uh, sometime at the beginning of May. And she said that they were going to, they were going to need some time. Um, so they were asking for an extension because the file was so large and it would be a lot of work to get it together, get it to us. Um, she did say it was the largest file in St. Joseph County. They had held it under lock and key. And um, so for those reasons, they were going to need some, some time to get it together. So the extension, you know, of course, obviously I said that that was fine. That kind of led into why we took the the break there. I mean, once we got our hands on it, this was a very large case file. Some of the challenges of them having to, part of their stipulation was that they were going to redact information such as identities and locations in order for us to be able to get the case file, which is fine. We will take that. When we received it, though, I mean, with it not only just being a large case file, it was kind of unorganized, too. We had interviews in different areas of the case file and different you know, individuals who uh, had their own reports that were filed. And so it was very challenging to kind of put this together. So what we ended up doing was putting a spreadsheet together and organizing it in a way that we can better understand it. Cross-reference interviews, look at the timeline, put things in order from testimonies of, or law enforcement interviews, dispatch log evidence, polygraphs, you know, all of the above. We, we put it all together. Once we're going through it, you know, as we read through every single document in this case file, there are so many rabbit holes that law enforcement was taking down. You can understand, and like I've said before, this quickly got out of hand as far as all the testimonies and leads and, and rumors that were being spread. You had times where you had one individual sharing a testimony and then it would be regurgitated by, and, and shared by somebody else. And it's the same story, but it's told in their own version and way. Or sometimes the, the story would unfold a little bit more and you would get a little bit more detail. And, and who knows if that's true or not. It's just them adding maybe what they heard to it. It's almost like that game where you play where as kids whisper one thing at the bottom of the line and goes all the way up the chain. By the end of it, you got something completely different. I don't want us to go down all these rabbit holes. We can spend episode after episode after episode, but what's the point of that if if what we've worked on, we can see and say, hey, that's not somewhere we don't we don't need to go. We're not going to entertain it. That's part of why there's so many challenges with this case. And throwing more names out there is just gonna make things more complicated. What we're gonna do is focus on the timeline of Brittany's disappearance and those she was closest to, and not rumors, not rabbit trails, but things that we can say, hey, we have proof of this X, Y, and Z, and holding people accountable to their testimony. With it being redacted, that also creates challenges because sometimes we don't know who the individual is that's, that's being interviewed. A lot of these testimonies, we were able to piece together the story and say, okay, this is who this is because we know, we've heard this before, and we know who's providing this testimony. We have a good idea on who it is. So what I would like to do is for us to start where this all begins. And that is starting at Sheldon's house, starting with Sheldon's testimony. So Sheldon 
voluntarily goes to the sheriff's department for an interview. He is uh, talking to uh, an officer and he says he's known Brit for a long time and that they officially began dating again on uh, or about 1122. This would line up with what we saw on her Facebook. He continues on and he says that at this time, Thor was living with him and then Brittany moved in with both of them. Sheldon explains that he and Brittany had a disagreement on the morning of 1130 over one another's drug use. So he tells the officer that Brittany told him that he wouldn't like her much later on. And he took this to mean that she was going to get high or use later um, when she left to go to her grandmother's. He says he was using Adderall, she was using meth, and she tells him at some point that she has about a gram left, and she tells him that after she uses this, she's not going to use anymore. And Sheldon says, you know, fine, use this. And and he tells her he really has two rules, and one is not to use needles, and two, that this really be the end of of her using. They continue on with their day. Brittany asks to borrow the car to do laundry. And when she asks, Sheldon says that he offers to take her to do laundry. And he says at this point, she she kind of gets attitude with him. She wants to go herself. So he ends up allowing her to borrow the car. She leaves to do laundry. And he says that she calls him shortly after she left and complains to him that there's no gas in the car. And she's kind of pissed off about that. He says some time passes and he texts her a couple times, but she doesn't ever respond to him. And he kind of lets it go until he's getting ready for for bed and he starts to worry that she hasn't returned yet. Before he goes to bed, he decides he's going to call his friend Bowman, which, you know, we've heard from him, and ask Bowman if Bowman could give him a ride around town, maybe figure out where she is, maybe find the car. Bowman agrees. He comes. He picks up Sheldon. And once he picks up Sheldon, Sheldon and and Bowman they start looking for Brittany and they go to Ashley's first and Sheldon refers to um, Ashley's as a dope house and they, you know, drive around the area and they don't see Brittany. They don't see the car. So they head over to grandma's and he says they, they just drive by grandma's. They don't see his car there. So he says they decide to drive back over to Ashley's, take one more look. And again, they don't see the car. Bowman heads back to Sheldon's to drop him off. Bowman drops him off and Sheldon leaves his phone in Bowman's vehicle. He forgets his phone. So Bowman leaves and Sheldon says... Uh, that he gets his car from impound the following Thursday after the incident. In in his statement, he says this. And 
Um, he says when he gets the car from from impound, the purse has been dumped out, thrown around, he says. It's kind of in shambles. And the glove box has been gone through. And Sheldon says that he noticed the windows, two of the windows were down, and there's snow inside the car. And he mentions that her laundry is still in the car. And I assume this is the laundry that she was doing at grandma's. Um, he mentions not finding the phone in the car, but he does say that he finds a couple SIM cards, which she later um, gives to Jess. An officer asks Sheldon about, you know, if he'd received any contact or threats or communication since this incident. And Sheldon confirms that, yes, he has. And um, he mentions that somebody showed up at his house. The name's redacted. Um, somebody shows up at his house and, and Sheldon refers to the person who has shown up at his house as spun out. And I think I think he mentions in his interview with you that um, Eric showed up and, and was chewed up. Mm-hmm. So the officer asks Sheldon, how he knew Ashley's was a dope house. And and Sheldon explains that he had brought Britt over to Ashley's previously to pay a small debt she had. And I think he mentions this also in his interview with you, mm-hmm. that this is just prior to Friendsgiving. Right. He says this takes place on the 24th because it was after Thanksgiving, but the weekend of Thanksgiving, which we know the 22nd Correct. that year was when Thanksgiving fell on that Thursday, so this had been the 24th, which contradicts the last time you saw Britt at Walmart on the 23rd. Because Ashley says she saw Brittany at Walmart when she went to go get the headlight, and this whole interaction right. happens. Right. is on the 23rd is what she says. But Sheldon's saying, no, I took her back over to her house, Ashley's, mm-hmm. on the 24th, yep. and she went inside to pay a debt, but then came out with more drugs. Yeah. he And Sheldon confirms that. Sheldon says that she went inside to pay this small debt, but she she came out with more uh, narcotics. So that definitely contradicts what we've heard. The, the interview kind of wraps up with uh, the officer asking Sheldon if he had found Brittany's phone or wallet in the apartment or the car since the incident occurred. And Sheldon says, no, he has not found either of those things. What sticks out to me about that, that, that statement by him is when the car is impounded on the 30th, no one else gets into that vehicle until Sheldon does when he retrieves it back from the impound. So when he goes inside of it and he looks in there, it's mm-hmm. been said by Ashley that Jessica went and grabbed the phone and took it to mm-hmm. law enforcement and she turned it into law enforcement. But before she did, she wiped it. Which I don't know how yeah. you know that she wiped it before she turned it in. If you've, I don't know, I don't understand that statement. How do you know that she wiped it? He doesn't see the wallet. A purse is flipped upside down. Things are scattered. Cell phones also not in the house, along with the wallet. So we're missing those two items. If Sheldon was responsible for Brittany's disappearance, and he was involved and he had a role in this, it's hard for me to understand. Is why put it out there that you got into an argument with Brittany the morning of her disappearance? Mm-hmm. Like, why would you put that? No one else needed, no one would have known that. The only person that witnessed it was Thor. Right. And Thor's name has also been brought into this as somebody who they thought may have matched the mutton chop look. 
why, why mention that at all, period? Why bring more attention or give law enforcement to kind of give another eyebrow raiser? Like, so you got into an argument with her the day she goes missing? You know, why add that information? If you and Thor were working together and had a hand involved with Brittany's disappearance, why voluntarily provide that information? That just seems more like to me you're providing the, the truth, even when the truth kind of might give the best look, but it's the truth. Mm-hmm. And now, Again, Sheldon told us, like, yeah, we were kind of arguing and bickering, but, like, it wasn't anything serious. And in our interview with Thor, he says, yeah, they, you know, I could tell that there was some sort of argument going on between the two, but it wasn't like they were shouting or yelling. Like, I could just tell from a distance, and I can see that they were in some sort of relationship issue. But again, never physical, and wasn't there wasn't shouting going back and forth. Mm -hmm. If Sheldon was in that big of a, you know, if Sheldon was in an argument with her, and there was they were at odds. Why give her the car? Why let her go? Yeah, I think that's a good point, actually. This is how you want to be, and you're going to you know, act like this? Then no, you can't take the car. Mm-hmm. As far as the locations that they went to, they went from Sheldon's to Ashley's because Ashley's was a place that she would purchase her dough. He'd been there before. From Ashley's, they go to Grandma's. Grandma's back yes. to Ashley's. Ashley's back home. That's exactly how Sheldon mm-hmm. recalls the time or recalls the location or route that they go. Something else he mentions is after Brittany leaves his house with the car, she does call him asking about gas. His story seems pretty accurate, given the fact that it's been three years. I mean, he's still pretty consistent. Yeah. I mean, this, this interview that he gives seems to be very similar to the testimony he he gave you. And again, even when it doesn't look good, you still provide information because you're just being transparent. You, you you have no reason why. And in my mind, he's probably not even thinking about like how this is going to look back on him. He had no idea that this would flip the way it did. Right. Does it say anything about after returning from going to Ashley's grandma, Ashley's back to the house and him receiving the cell phone or him forgetting his cell phone. Let's talk about that. Is How does that look? How did that play out? Sheldon says that after Bowman drops him off without his cell phone, um, that within five to 10 minutes, he estimates that the that law enforcement show up. And so, you know, five to 10 minutes after Bowman drops him off, law enforcement is there. And that, to me, really tightens up the timeline. That's very soon. Okay. And do we have a timestamp that we can put down right now that says what time law enforcement arrives to Sheldon? So we do. We we know that um, one of the detectives reports that it's sometime around 10 p.m. So, you know. That they arrived to Sheldon's. Right, that they arrived okay. to Sheldon's. So sometime around 10 is what we use for now. Right, sometime okay. around 10. Do we have more clarification on when she actually leaves Sheldon's, though? We do. So sometime between 3 and 5, Sheldon estimates that she leaves his ho- his house. I would naturally assume, based on his interview with another one of the uh, detectives or one of the officers handling the case in his interview with them, he tells them that that phone call for the gas uh, complaint, I guess, is mm-hmm. sometime around five and six p.m. Now Sheldon also told us that that didn't that phone call didn't happen too long after she leaves. So if he's saying this right. between five and six, I would 
tend to gravitate more towards her leaving Sheldon's house around 5 p.m. I agree. That seems, you know, about the logical time that you're going to complain about gas. You're not going to complain an hour after you're gone. You're going to get in the car, start driving and think, why the hell isn't there enough gas in the car? Okay, so Sheldon isn't really, I mean, there there aren't any, aren't any red flags here from what I'm seeing. Now, he doesn't provide a time on that phone call requesting Eric Bowman to come pick him up and take him around to find his vehicle and find Brittany. Correct. Let's go to Eric Bowman's testimony and let's see what he has to say about the 30th. So Eric tells police that the last time he saw Brittany was uh, 11.24. And I assume that this was at the Friendsgiving that they they had after Thanksgiving. Okay, so she's been seen with Sheldon on the 24th. Multiple witnesses now at this point. Yeah. Okay. Sheldon says he's been in contact with Eric on that day for multiple reasons. But he does say he makes contact with him in regards to having some concerns. Take us through what he shares with law enforcement about the 30th. So Bowman confirms that on the 30th, Sheldon tells him that Brittany had borrowed the car around 5 p.m. So this is Bowman. uh, This is Sheldon telling Bowman. And Bowman is now reporting it to the police officer. Okay. So we have that time stamp of, you know, around 5 p.m. Brittany's leaving Sheldon's house. And Bowman allows the officer to look at his phone and see that Sheldon calls him and asks him to pick him up to go look for Britt at 9.42 p.m. Okay, so now that's a hard timestamp. So law enforcement sees the phone call on Eric Bowman's phone. Correct. Calling Sheldon at 9.42 p.m. Mm-hmm. Correct. Meanwhile, Sheldon has already been in contact with Ashley and Eric. She never communicates actually with Ashley on the day of, but we know at this point he's already called them multiple times. He's looking for Britt. He's trying to get a hold of her. She's not answering, so then he eventually makes his contact with Eric Bowman at 9.42 p.m. for the ride. So let's say Eric Bowman, how long did it take for him to get from his house to Sheldon's? We thought it was anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes. Right. I would I would even, you know, be generous and say 15 minutes. The call's at 9.42. Let's say he arrives getting his keys, getting out the car, driving, stoplight, whatever. Let's say it's 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's say... Sh- Eric Bowman is at Sheldon's by 10 p.m. Sure. And are in the process of leaving. Yes. Okay. So Bowman continues on uh, talking to the officer for his in-, in his interview, and he tells the officer that the Facebook that he had most recently communicated with Brittany on was the, the um, Wallace and Brittany account that we have the download for and he wraps up the interview the officer wraps up the interview by asking Bowman what he thinks uh, of the relationship between between Brittany and Sheldon if it was a good one and both Bowman and his cousin agree that yeah they believe that it was a good relationship D- does does Bowman's 
recollection of where they went that night on the 30th match, Sheldon's? Yeah, Bowman says that they went to Ashley's and and Grandma's, and, and he agrees that they didn't go into either place. They just went by looking for the car. Okay. Matches, I mean, pretty much matches up with what he told me, what he told law enforcement with Sheldon's story. Yeah. Things seem to be matching up. One thing you mentioned is he talks about having conversation history or communication, at least, with Brittany on his on her most recent Facebook. But when I look at the Correct. download, I don't see any conversation history between Eric Bowman and Britt. So I don't... It's just something to point out. I don't know if there's anything to mm-hmm. it. But when I go in there and I look at what was provided, it's not in there. Right. We don't see that. So I guess, Sarah, the biggest takeaway that sticks out to me is the 9.42 p.m. call. Absolutely. Let's talk about Thor. Let's talk about Thor. Thor was the guy who was kind of couch surfing at this time. And he had asked Sheldon if he can stay at his place for a few days to kind of get on his feet was supposed to be at Sheldon's house the night of the 30th watching Sheldon's daughter. Can we first confirm that Sheldon's daughter was there? Well, Sheldon did say in his testimony that uh, while Brittany is dyeing her hair that morning of the 30th, he goes to pick up his daughter. So we do have that mentioned. All right, so his daughter is there. What does Thor say about the 30th? So Thor's interview is relatively short, and he he confirms that he moved in um, with Sheldon and Sheldon's daughter, and then Brittany moved in. He says that Brittany and Sheldon, you know, spent a lot of time hanging out in their bedroom. He mentions that uh, Brittany and Sheldon had a disagreement that morning on the 30th. And he said it was from his perspective was about life choices. And um, he says that he knew that Britt had used meth and that Sheldon he thought had been clean. He says there was, uh, he was there on November 30th when the police arrived. And he confirms that law enforcement arrived when Sheldon had just, you know, gotten back from being out with Bowman not not long before they arrive. And really that's about the extent of his of his interview. So Thor also acknowledges the argument. Yes. Again, why would you do that if you guys were involved and you were responsible? Why would you both willingly provide that information if that's yeah. not something that you I mean of course that's just not gonna look good. They're just telling the truth. Yeah, I mean, they're just rehashing the day as the day happened. In my eyes, if let's say if these guys were involved, and again, in my mm-hmm. eyes, why would you put that out there if you both were controlling the scene, if you both had yeah. a hand in this? Like, why would you do that? Yeah. It seems to me if you were guilty of something, arguing that day would be something that you would hide. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the 911 call came in at 8.51, mm-hmm. Sheldon is requesting a ride at 9.42. Yes. That just, I mean, is more concrete 
information that in proof by a phone call that law enforcement saw with their own eyes, Sheldon was home at the timing of this incident taking place. And, and not only is that confirmation by law enforcement about Sheldon being home, but we have confirmation from law enforcement that the actual time of the call is 942 because Bowman gives his phone to the officer and the officer sees yeah. the timestamp. Now that we have Sheldon, Eric Bowman, and Thor's testimony, everything seems to be lining up. It wasn't until we got this case file that I actually found out about this next section and this next interview. And that is conversation between Brittany and Zachary B. He was the guy that she was talking to while he was inside. He was serving some time. She actually has three calls with him on the 30th, all recorded, obviously. Talk to us about those calls. So the statement starts off with an interview. And the first call was on 1130 at 60 and 44 hours. So that's 444. And it goes on to say, you can hear Brittany speaking, and it sounded like she was walking outside. You can hear a male's voice and kids in the background. She started talking about how she dyed her hair black, and she had gotten up at approximately 2.12 p.m. on this date. She stated that she was waiting for a lady to call about a job and was getting a place. However, she did not say where the place was. In the conversation, Brittany talked about a subject by the name of Pocket going to jail last night, which I knew from information. And when I say I knew, this is the the um, detective writing the statement, which I knew from information prior that the subject was Polly who was Ashley's boyfriend at the time. She talked about Pocket's old lady and Eric, which I believe to be Eric S. She stated she didn't need anything and said something about him doing some revengeful bullshit. I believe she was referring to Eric S. doing some revengeful bullshit in that conversation. On the same day, 113018, at 1726 hours, 526, a second call was made to Brittany, which she stated, I do everything for you, Zach. I told you what I'm doing. In that conversation, you could hear music in the background and it sounded like someone was in a car driving. She stated she had to go do laundry and she had gotten into a fight with Sheldon. She then started speaking about a four-year-old and then talking about him not going back to work, which I believe she was speaking in reference to Sheldon. She went on to talk about Sheldon's rent and the landlord. She then made the comment to Zach that she had to have him on speakerphone while she was driving. She had to be careful because she had a paper plate on the car and stated that she had his car, meaning Sheldon's Mercury. She stated she did not know what kind of Mercury it was and talked about how Sheldon was off and on, off on that date 
I assume that means work, off on that date, and that he did not work on Fridays. She stated to Zach that she was still going to help him and then started to describe how foggy it was outside. She made the comment, ever since this happened, it was unclear what she was speaking about. She then started talking about how she did not have a schedule for work and she started speaking about work and them cutting her hours. She was telling Zach that she was going to call her boss about the hours after she gets off the phone with him. She then made a comment that she wasn't fucking around like Dane, unknown who that is. It says it says Dane, but I'm wondering if that was in reference to Daniel. Yes, agree. She then started talking about how she'd probably start a job in Indiana on Monday. The third call on 11-30-18 at 17.42 hours, 5.42, stated she was almost to grandma's, and Zach said to be careful, and then he stated he would call her after his shower, and that was the last phone call Zach had with her. I'm curious, if, and I don't think it says it in there, but it doesn't mention a fourth attempt to make a call after that phone, that shower? No. In this statement, it does not, yeah. I wonder if call attempts, because if he calls and let's say her phone's off, I wonder if it would show. I would imagine that the jail call records, it would show an attempt. Okay, uh, let's break that down, those phone calls. First one is the 4.44 p.m. That phone call at 4.44 p.m., Mm -hmm. they mention her talking about pocket. Yes, Ashley's guy, and then also Eric. Yes. Eric makes a comment about doing some some sort of revengeful bullshit or revengeful shit to her. Yes. That's obviously, again, another thing that sticks out on the day of her disappearance. She's acknowledging that there's some friction between her and Eric S. Yeah, it does sound like that. And again, she's confirming because Ashley was the one who was trying to kind of say Pocket got picked up and arrested or she was questioning herself thinking it was on the 28th. Here is Brittany saying the night before Pocket got picked up on the 30th, referring to the 29th. I wonder what that revengeful shit Eric's talking about. Her wanting to get a divorce? Or do you think this could have been more about the October comment she makes to Sheldon where she says something about how it was Eric the entire time. And, and Sheldon's like, what do you mean it was him about the, I think we, we thought it was about this, the, the raid. What, what are you trying to seek revenge for? Brittany's saying it herself. This isn't an opinion. This isn't us giving our opinion on the relationship or reaching again, law enforcement, listen to the call. This comment about doing some revengeful bullshit, I think that could be about either of those of those things, you know, something happening in October or, you know, the the raid or or the divorce um, paperwork. I think it could easily apply to any of those things. And then we have the comment where Sheldon is talking to Eric and Eric says, last time I heard from her or he had reached out to her about that shit she had for him or something like that? Yeah, yes. Hey, we can clear this up if we can have a conversation. Let's move on to 
5.26 p.m. She's now in the car. Yes. Background music. Sounds like she's driving. She tells Zach she's going to her grandma's to do laundry and that she also got in a fight with Sheldon, which we know that that argument between her and Sheldon, we kind of know the context of that. Let's talk about that last call at 5.42 p.m. She tells Zach that she's almost to grandma's. He does tell her he'll call her back later on that evening after he gets out of the shower. Yes. I wonder if there's ever, if if law enforcement, if they were able to see if there was an attempt to make that final call, just to see if it, mm-hmm. it did it ring? Did it not ring? What time did it, did, did he attempt to make that call? I'd, I'd be curious mm-hmm. to just to know the details. But she tells him she's almost there. Now, if she's telling Zach, hey, I tell you everything I do, like, I'm going from here to grandma's. If she was actually going somewhere else and didn't want didn't want Zach Zachary to know at that moment, she would tell him I'm almost to grandma's, but maybe she's really going somewhere else. I mean, that, that's a possibility. Is is that you're you're explaining what you're doing, but you're not you're taking kind of a detour before you go, and it only makes sense for him to say for her to say, "Hey, I'm almost there. I got to go," because she's actually really arriving almost to somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Okay, so at five forty two, that's the last call. I, and again, we don't have any time. We don't have any duration. To show yeah. if this was a 15-minute call, 20-minute call. You explained to me that certain facilities have different restrictions. And then, you know, so we don't know if this was a 15, 20, or 10-minute call. But right at 5.42, she has that call, tells Zach, going to grandma's, okay. I think also something else that was important there is the weather has always been, you know, a, a bone of contention. Some people say it's it's foggy. Some people say it wasn't foggy. It was clear. Well, here she is here, right here, stating it was very foggy. In her own so, words, yeah. In her own words, and there we have right. it. Right. So that's basically the where it ends, is there's these calls. Again, we didn't have these before, so being able to see the timestamp, we can kind of say, okay, we know that she was talking to him while she was at Sheldon's. She talks to him once she leaves, and then she's talking before she either arrives to grandma's, like she does say, or somewhere else. We know that she's obviously trying to get some more drugs because we have uh, Dutchie telling us, yeah, she called me and told her I couldn't do it. You don't see Brittany telling that to Zachary B., of course. Right, right. Okay. Since that's where it ends with Zach, I want to move on to grandma's house and the testimonies we gather from there. So the statements statement we have from grandma is pretty limited. And that's not because of redaction. That's just because her statement is, is pretty limited. And what we hear from her is that uh, she confirms that me did come over to do laundry. And she says it was earlier in the afternoon or evening, possibly around... 1800 hours so that's you know around six o'clock on the 30th she says she was there doing laundry and she says Brittany was accompanied by a white male that she had never met or seen before she described the white male as being five six to five eight a thin build short blonde hair and rather bushy mutton chop style sideburns 
And that's really about all we have from Grandma. Okay, so I want to talk about just his build for a second. This is how many days after the 30th? Just just eight days later. Eight days. This is the freshest her memory is going to be from what she recalls and remembers. Thin build, mutton chop sideburns. I would say that would exclude Sheldon in in respectful way. It just doesn't fit his statue. It doesn't fit his stature. It doesn't. It doesn't fit Chuck's stature either. Okay. So, and then around the time is six p.m. is when she says she's arriving. Which, if you look at the jail call and you look at the time that she, you know, we know that she's leaving around five. This would make sense. But again, I think you have to give that room a grace of some. 20, 30 minute window because time frames are, are unique to everybody. The 10 minutes for me, you know, I think back about it. I just think with it being around six, there's flexibility. That's all I'm trying to say. And we don't have any other testimonies from grandmas. This is about it. It, it Her testimony is, is very limited. And again, like I said, it's not because of redaction. It's just limited. Yeah. It's, it's limited. Okay. Okay. We don't have any other testimony from anybody else in the household at that time. But law enforcement, they are made aware of who is present in the household, though, eventually, right? Eventually. Okay, so let's move on to after Brittany leaves Grandma's house. We know that she heads northeast and eventually makes her way down to Workman Road. We have the crash. Mm-hmm. Let's go to John Cassard's testimony. Uh, we have a we have testimony from the elderly gentleman at the the first home that Brittany goes to, and uh, he says that Brittany shows up at his at his house and gives her a, a, a sweatshirt because she has uh, short sleeves on and she's there because she says that she had a crash, car crash. And um, he says that she refers to somebody with her as his, as her boyfriend. Um, he says that she had called 911 and then handed the phone to him to give dispatch the the directions or address to his house. He says that he doesn't remember if he talked to a man or woman. And he, he says that he wasn't sure if she actually called 911 or just said she had. And so I wonder if that part is maybe referring to uh, when she uses his- Attempts to use a cell phone? Yeah, the cell phone. The officer says that he checked the call log and found that there were actually three calls recorded to 911 on that night from from John's, one at 20.50, so 8.50 p.m., one at 20.56, that would be 8.56 p.m., and one at 21.22, which is 9.22. We know that he that John mentions uh, she has scratches, Uh, abrasions on her feet and her arms. John, in this statement, John goes on to give consent to the officer to search his home. 
And the officer says it was very clean, not cluttered at all. He did not locate anything unusual, suspicious, or anything that could possibly be related. He says it's to be noted that John is an elderly man who walks with a cane and is currently on dialysis. He is not able to make it upstairs or to the basement of the residence. And the officer closes his statement by saying he checked all areas of the home. So we know phone calls are now around 50, 51. There's that call. She ends up leaving abruptly middle of the phone call as he's trying to give directions and takes off. Okay, obviously he doesn't mention anything about seeing another individual around. There were discussions about how Brittany attempted to use his cell phone first. And he had an old school flip phone is what Christina, how she described it. She could see that Brittany attempts to call grandma and then attempts to call 911 and those aren't going through. So he eventually changes the device to the landline. She takes off mid phone call and we head over to the neighbor's house, the young kid's house. I've walked that distance from John's to the young boy's house. I mean, you're there in a matter of, you can be there in a minute. You can be there very, very quickly. Let's see what he has to say. So the young man at that second home is interviewed and he states on the night of the incident, he was home alone. He relays to the officer that he sees a female in the backyard. While he sees the female in the backyard, um, he says that someone else is knocking on the front door. He witnesses the female walking around to the front of the house looking in the windows while the other person was knocking on the door. He doesn't make any contact with the female. And he says that she's wearing a coat and he is scared. He's home alone. So he goes into another room of the house and kind of hides while uh, he makes a phone call to his mother. That changes things. So one thing he says is that he's in the kitchen and hears a knock on the door. Keep in mind, the back sliding door, is it's a glass door. Mm-hmm. He hears a knock, but then he hears footsteps on the back. Okay, so they're both there. And he also observes her making her way around to the front of the house. He then gets frightened because of the situation, like he's, he's a young kid. And again, you kind of see a knock on the front door, or you hear a knock on the front door, you hear, you hear these steps and see a female, and you're, I would be obviously like, what the hell's going on? Mm-hmm. He makes a phone call to mom. Mom tells him, because we've talked to mom before, she said, tells him, hey, look outside. Mm-hmm. See if there's a car there. Mm-hmm. Brittany's made her way around to the front of the house. He uh, goes on to describe the female as having dark hair, wearing a big green coat, he calls it, and acting strange. And when he looks outside at, at mom's insistence, um, he says there's no there's no car in the driveway. 
He, he does say here, though, that there was a light on inside the house and he makes eye contact with the girl, the woman in the yard. And he was still scared. So uh, he stays where he is and... Mom phones the neighbor friend to come up correct, from the road. Correct. Okay, and he's waiting for the guy to come, for the neighbor friend. Okay. Yes. yes. Pause. What does that mean, though? Like, what does that tell us? If if Brittany is there at the young kid's house and she's on the backside, this is the second time, I want to repeat, the second time she's gone to the back of the house and not the front. And, and, and knowing that there's a knock on the front of the house, is she going to the back because she's trying to stay out of law enforcement or anybody else's? Like, I, I'm trying to understand why go to the back of the house like you did with John's? Because if she's fearful of the guy, okay, well, that makes sense. But why, if he's knocking on the front and she makes her way to the front? I think going to, to John's, when she went to John's and she goes to the back, that tells me that she's trying to stay out of out of view of, of the main road. That makes me think she's scared of somebody because at that point she hasn't called law enforcement yet. So that makes me think she's scared and trying to stay out of view of somebody. But then we go go across the street. And we know now that law enforcement has been called. So her going to the back seems strange to me because when you walk across the street, you're approaching the front of the house. So to me, the only reason I can think that you're going to go around to the back is again, to stay out of view of somebody, whether that's law enforcement or whomever is is with her I don't yeah. I don't know but it doesn't I I don't think it if there is this second person knocking or just in in the area of the house in the vicinity of the house it doesn't seem like she wouldn't know that because that that's a pretty close proximity to be and is she going to hear this person, this other person, knock on that door? I mean, you're out in the middle of nowhere. You're not yeah. in the city. You're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it's country. Right. And you hear a knock. There's no environmental <laughs> sounds. So she makes her way to the front. I've, always, I've, I've been trying, I'm wrestling with that thought. Is this premeditated or is this a, a heat of the moment situation that unfolded? The fact that he's at the front of the house and that the young kid says he hears the knock and also hears first, you know, footsteps on the back patio porch and he sees her move her way around to the front of the house. I wanna like I wanna bank on the fact that he would know the difference between a front door, you know, wooden door knock and then a glass window for a back sliding door knock. You know, as the house design is set up, like it's not like this is different multi-floor level house it's right there so i want to say he's pretty accurate with his 
his, him hearing the knock on the front, then hearing the steps on the back. And in that moment, you know, to play devil's advocate, I think in that moment, he's scared. And your fear takes over, you know, your maybe your best sense, you know? And so is it really the back door he's hearing? Is it the front? Is it, you know, you're concentrating on your fear and staying safe. So I can see either scenario. If we're going to go with with the the scenario that he puts forth here and somebody does knock on the back, this is confirmation that there is a second person either following along or following her. Let's say, let's play that scenario. Mystery Man and Brittany, they get into the accident and they flee. I've always felt like, man, that was a complete idiotic move for you to go to grandma's if this was a premeditated situation. Never made sense to me. Let's say they leave and there, there's two tif- two different ways that they can leave. They both scurry out of the car, freaking out because there's an accident and they possibly have drugs on them. And they're trying to get away from the scene. And they go either in the opposite direction together or they go right. in the same direction together. I'm still wondering why her shoes are off and why she's got bloody arms and or blood around her arms and her feet. You know, we already know that she's probably scurrying across that orchard or that, that crop field. And as she's going across, it's all been cut. So... If she's running and she falls and she, you know, that could be all self-inflicted. Sure. She can go through that little forest area across the street from the elderly man's house and making her way through there. There's the arms. There's that makes sense to me. I've been out there. My hands are bleeding walking through that stuff as well. If she goes to John's house and she's making that phone call, why isn't the guy present? I asked you that question. I said, as a female, I mean, we don't know that, they don't know that John's an elderly man. Maybe they do. But having Brittany show up without shoes on, cuts on her arms and feet, her presenting herself by herself seems that 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 comes off differently, in my opinion, for a girl versus having a guy next to her. I think it comes off much less threatening to the person you're approaching. Um, And and for the, you know, for the, the female approaching, you think you're thinking there's, you know, maybe a better chance of me getting. What would you do? What would you do? You're, this isn't, you're not in the city. Remember, keep in mind, you're out yeah. in the middle of the, like it's, yeah. there's very little around. Guy comes up to your girl, comes up to your door with, you know, some, some cuts and, and it's almost nine o'clock at night. It's freezing. She's got nothing on besides, or I mean, she's no shoes or, or a jacket on, no socks. And there's a guy next to her. You going to open no, that door? No, no, no. When I went back to John's house and his grandson was watching the house as they were in the process because John passed away, the kids got a doorbell camera, security mm-hmm. camera right there. I'm thinking, man, if at the young kid's house or at John's house, if, if there's a ring doorbell or a nest or whatever, yeah, man. Yeah. So if they do go in the opposite direction. Maybe it is Brittany by herself and she makes her way to the back of the house and he goes the opposite direction, maybe down the back side of that dirt road of Workman. Maybe he just naturally makes his way back down towards Fawn River because that's where he's going to get picked up if he is calling anybody for help. 
So they end up eventually coming to the young kid's house regardless. And the young kid's saying, here's the door, the knock on the front and her in the back. Does she realize he's now made it there? Does Brittany know that he's there? Does Brittany hear the knock and then like makes her way to the front? Like, I think you hear the knock. And so she makes her way to the front and then as they're leaving, she glances inside and, and they make eye contact, her and the kid, and she, he says she proceeds to head back to towards the road on front, you know, Fawn River. In my opinion, like it, they don't head back towards the crash site. They don't head back to John's, obviously. They have to get off the road quick enough, though, from the neighbor friend to be sent down, and which isn't hard. It's a, there's a field, literally. There's another field right across the, the road from you know surrounding these houses. So they could have gotten out of gotten off the main road, out of sight, because they now know cops are on their way. That begs the question: If this was not premeditated, if this is not a crime, why why is she seeking help? via 911. Why are you not calling a friend? Uh, uncle, you know, Uncle uh, Sheldon. Somebody else. Why? Is it possible she just doesn't remember the number? I mean, she remembers grandma's. Sure. I mean, she remembers grandma's. And if this this other person, this guy is with you, does he not have a phone? Does he not remember any numbers? I mean, she calls 911. But the only place that they have a choice to make a, a, a selection of the, you know, where they could choose what number they're calling is from John's cell phone, which she's supposed to be by herself. And she calls the one number she remembers. So is it better to call 911? What do you do? There's this car sitting there. What are you going to do? If it's me and I'm hiding, or I'm maybe not hiding, but doing this behind my boyfriend's back, and I have his car, but I also have a warrant. I'm sorry, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take the the leap, and I'm gonna call my boyfriend, and you know, take whatever happens after rather than calling 911. If I was in fear for my life, I'm calling 911, whether I have a warrant or not. Puts a spin on what we've thought and and formulated theories on up to this point. If he is with her and they are leaving, right, and they're, they're exiting the situation and they're trying to get out of it, where do they get picked up and where do they go? I imagine they're returning to where they possibly, where she obviously picked them up from, but where they came from. And who was there to assist them with picking them up? I just, I have a really strong feeling that they get picked up on Watt Road. I believe he probably has a cell phone. She doesn't have her cell phone on her. I mean, there's a possibility that he... The two of them link back up, and it's at the, it's in front of the kid's house. He's telling her like, "Let's go!" Like I like I already called like, "Let's go!" And they and they take off, and they head towards Watt Road, back on Front River, back to Watt Road, down to Watt Road. You know, get out of sight, get away from the situation. Cops are coming. Do you think then 
if that's the case and that's the plan after you know they they head out why why was there a call to 911 if you're not going to stick around and if you're you are going to take off and go you know down wherever you know for her to say my boyfriend wrecked the car we already yeah. know that's not that's not Sheldon yeah. Like, right, or if right. that's what we're gonna, you know, for what we're working with, if it's not Sheldon, I think that she's trying to get the car back to Sheldon. That's the best way she knows how to do it. Why not call him though? Maybe she just doesn't have his number. She doesn't remember it. It's in her phone. Her phone's in the car, or he has her phone. And the fact that the law, the uh, the officer said that her purse was flipped upside down and the car was a mess, I, that tells me that they were looking for something. Law enforcement looked into the glove box, looked at the registration and everything. Law enforcement going through, dumping her purse upside down, going through stuff. I don't think law enforcement's going to do that. No, agreed. That's what I was just going to say. I think they would have opened the glove box, gotten the registration, but I don't think they would have pulled stuff out and rifled through it. And again, there's no screaming. No one's saying that they heard anything. No one's saying that they... And the young guy, I mean, the neighbor friend comes down the road and he gets out. He goes inside the house with the kid, checks on him, walks outside with him, looks through, you know, with a flashlight. They kind of peer through the woods a little bit next to their house. And he, you know, exits, heads down to Workman, sees the crash scene, approaches it, sits there until law enforcement arrives. And never, never sees anybody walking on the road when he comes to the, the young man's house or when he leaves. He never sees anybody. Okay, so now that we know how the whole situation unfolds at the young kid's mm-hmm. house, what time does law enforcement arrive? I want to know more about the dispatch log. Okay, so the detective working on the case requested the the actual um, call times from Central Dispatch. And we have recorded here that the first call from John's comes in at 20.51, so 8.51 p.m is the official Ooh. recorded time. Okay. At 21:24, 9:24, a call comes in saying that the the car um, has been located on Fawn River and Workman. So this is the call of the young man's mother's friend who came to check on him and make sure, yeah, husband. everything is okay. Yeah, 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 the husband there. At 9:24. At 9.43 p.m., the note um, here states that the female was last seen walking southwest of the first caller's home. So that would be John's home. At 10.03, we have Sturgis police being sent to the residence of the first call. So that's 10.03 p.m. that they're eventually dispatched out to John's. At 10.03, are they arriving at 10.03 or they're being sent? I just want to be clear. Nope, the officers are being sent in reference to that to that call where she makes contact. Now, rewind even further. At 9.24, that call is being made by the friend, the husband, friend, right. the neighbor down the road that comes Correct. and checks on the boy. So by the time he gets there, so the 911 calls at 851, and then by the time before 9, she's at the young kid's house, and then mother calls neighbor, 943. 
That phone call is made by... 943 uh, says that the female was last seen walking southwest of the the address of the the first caller. It does not say who made this phone call or where this phone call is coming from. This may be officers speaking between between themselves. So if it's 1003, it's reported that they're being sent out to the residence, John's. They get there. We still don't have a time of arrival yet on when they arrive to John's? No. How long? How much time do we give them? It's foggy out. It's bad weather, you know, weather condition. Okay. 15. Now, once they arrive on site, we know the law enforcement goes through the vehicle. They find an address. They figure out who's the owner of the vehicle. Sheldon's Uh buying it from aunt and uncle. Uh Then they send someone to his residence. Okay. We've already talked about their testimonies. They were all present. Well, at least Sheldon and Thor, along with Sheldon's daughter, were present. Eric Bowman shows up and law enforcement's already there. I want to go through the timeline to make sure to see if Sheldon's time of that he's allowed to be able to make that commute between all three destinations and back makes sense. And, sure. and, and fits in the timeline. Okay, so... Right. Yeah, I gotcha. Let's do this. We, we established earlier that when he calls Eric Bowman for the ride... The time was 9.42, and that was proven by a phone call made on Eric's, or receiving phone call from Eric's cell phone that law enforcement saw. Got it. By the time he arrives to Sheldon's, we gave it, we started 10 p.m. If from Sheldon's to Ashley's apartment complex, or apartments, the Village Manor, I've driven that, I mean, it's right Very up close. the road. I'm thinking three to five minutes. Yeah. All right, so 10.05. They said they didn't They didn't go inside. They didn't go to the door. They didn't go knock. They were just there. They drove by. They're going to leave and go back out to Grandma's. From Village Manor to Grandma's, that's approximately 15 minutes. So now we're at 1020. Now, we need to add another 5 to 10 minutes because, remember, there was overheating going on in the vehicle. I don't know where those stops were made or when they chose to let the car sit for a second, but if we have another 5 to 10 minutes, we're looking at 10, 25, 10, 30. And, and also taking into account that it's very foggy. Got to go back to Village Manor. From Grandma's, yeah. Which we said was 15. So mm-hmm. we're now at 1045. I don't know any more overheating experiences with the, with the truck mm-hmm. that, they, that they dealt with. But from Village Manor, you let maybe a two to three minutes go by of driving around where you know then again they're not driving in this apartment complex where there's multiple obviously multiple apartments but they're not driving around the entire parking lot sheldon knows right. where to go yeah. to be fair we'll even give him you know five minutes so it's 10 50. head back to sheldon's it's 10 55. so it would be fair to say sheldon's home between the time of probably 10 50 and 11 10. depending on how many times they had to sit and park or wait and conditions of the road. Oh, yeah. I think that's very fair. And let's reverse to when law enforcement says at 10.03, they're sending somebody out to John's house. So we count for 20 minutes there, 10.23. They're there. They get to the scene. They see the car. 
Then they have to figure out whose car it is. There's the phone calls being made. So let's say another 10 minutes passes by. 10.33. They eventually say, okay, well, this is Sheldon. They try to make contact. They, we know that they have Sheldon's phone, right? Because Sheldon tells us he provides it to them. So they should have the phone call that they made to Sheldon at that time. If they're at, if they're at Sheldon's car, though, and it's by 10.30, 10.35 around there that they're realizing the identity and the owner of this vehicle, mm-hmm. and they've already tried placing a call to him, they're trying to get over there, they eventually send local PD to his house. Mm-hmm. How long that takes... Again, I'm just given a grace period of maybe 10 minutes, five minutes around there, like depending on where local PD is at, having the, the resources they have. So if it's 1045, yeah. they get there. It's close enough, in my opinion, where I'm like, it seems to fit. Mm-hmm. I know for Sheldon, we said he would be there anywhere between 1050 to 1110. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a few minutes here and there. And that was us adding some decent amount of time to Sheldon's route with the car having to stop. And the time it takes Eric Bowman to get to Sheldon's. I mean, it seems to fit. But And again, Sheldon and Eric were both saying, like, as soon as I got dropped off, like, it wasn't long. They were there, maybe five, ten minutes. So they're arriving while Sheldon has just gotten back. And again, what's his, what are the clothes, what do do his conditions look like? What do the clothes look like? Does he have any scratches? Does he have, there is knuckles red? Does he have any scratches on his face? Because we can damn sure believe uh, Brittany put up a fucking fight. So I would think that there would be some sort of markings on him. But again, Thor's there. His daughter's there. Sheldon's there. Eric comes back. Phone's in his hand. They have the call history showing Eric, you know, Sheldon requesting the ride. Everything seems to fit so far. Next time on Hide and Seek. Okay, so now that we've wrapped up the 30th, I don't feel like there's any red flags coming from any of the individuals who we've had testimonies from that, we, that we've received testimonies from. When we compare who we've looked at, what, their interview, what they told me in their interview, what they told law enforcement, I want to go now, not just into... I don't want to go into the timeline anymore. I, I want to actually see... Those who were closest to Brittany, I want to know what they said. He sends locals out, a local PD, a a detective out there to go show that. And we actually get a response from Grandma that changes things quickly. Uh, I think one of the first statements um, officers ask her to recap the last time she has seen Brittany. She begins by by telling them that I want to see Daniel's, I want to see Ashley's, Eric's, Glide's. I want to see all their interviews. Let's go over those next. I want to see what they said.
The Hide and Seek podcast is hosted, directed, edited, and produced by James Basinger. Written, edited, and produced by Sarah Joe. Engineered, mixed, and mastered by Nudon's Audio Engineering. Director of Photography is Ethan Schatz. Our graphic design is created by Jordan Robinson. Thank you.